Well, thank you, Gareth, for that welcome. His glories now we sing of him who died, who rose on high, and who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. Great hymn. Thanks for the hymn, Gareth. And thanks, too, to the Crescent Singers. Now, as a basis for what I want to say tonight, uh, let me read for you the first three verses from the first psalm. I'm reading from the King James Authorized Version because that's the translation of my small pocket New Testament and Psalms, which has been my traveling companion and personal guide for 60 years. And it is also in that version that I have memorized scripture. Psalm 1 verse 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he doth meditate day and night. Verse 3, and he shall be like a tree, planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Blessed or happy is the man or woman who follows that pattern, if indeed we can call it a pattern. I feel that it's more a way of life, or at least a new pattern for life, if you like, based upon the new covenant that Jesus made for us through the blood of his cross, no longer bound by the old traditions. It's a newfound freedom in Christ. And the writer of the psalm seems to have grasped it. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe that my personal life must rather be that new lifestyle, that voluntary, deliberate way of living, a way of being, and not a set of imposed rules. It's got to be a choice that I make for myself, but based on clear biblical principles. In any case, so far as patterns for life are concerned, they can be generational. Different age groups will have their own ideas, and that's fine. If you look back through recent centuries, you will see how Christians organize their personal lives in many different ways. For instance, back in Victorian England, some set themselves rigid pathways to holiness. Businessmen often set time aside during business hours, closing their doors for half an hour mid-morning and putting a sign out to say that they were at prayer. I don't think that that would really work in today's society. It smacks to me of parading your devotions before men, although I'm sure it was never intended to be so. These were for the most good, honest, upright men of high repute, pillars of society. 
Perhaps they were merely trying to set an example for others to follow. In any case, we do well not to judge their motives. I remember at boarding school in Tokyo, daily devotions were the thing. It was a rule, never an option. There was always this great debate, should we do it in the morning or at night? Mornings were always recommended, but never taking into account that some people were just not morning people. And if it didn't work for them, well, what's the point? Isn't it good that the God of Jacob neither slumbers nor sleeps? We can engage with him at any time of the day or night. You must do as you feel is appropriate for you according to your personality, according to your circumstances, what you're comfortable with. For me, it's not just that half hour set aside every day, but rather in all of my waking hours, in all of my waking hours to have that acute consciousness of being in the Lord's presence and he in mine, in every activity, knowing that he is there. He sees everything I do. He knows me through and through. He understands me because he made me. And yes, he loves me just the way I am. It's experiencing what John writes in 1 John 1, walking in the light as he is in the light and having fellowship. Communion is a better word here probably. Having communion one with another, having that conscious knowledge of his presence. Brother Lawrence, the 17th century Carmelite friar who had come to experience and know the presence of God as a daily reality, described it as a life filled with intimacy and hidden joy. A life filled with intimacy and hidden joy. As teenagers, we were often told to keep short accounts with God. What does that mean? Well, I don't need to remind you that even as followers of Jesus Christ, and many of us have been so for many years, we sin daily in thought, in word, in deed. And so the moment we are conscious of sin, we need to do as the Apostle John encourages us to do, and that is to immediately confess it in the sure knowledge that he who is faithful and just will forgive and cleanse us, thus allowing the broken fellowship to be restored, keeping short accounts with God. I often wonder how I will fare when my earthly account is closed and I am called upon to stand at the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, for we must all appear to give an account of how we have lived out our Christian lives, whether they be good or bad. 
And when my personal ledger is produced, will there be anything outstanding? Just think about it. Anything outstanding at the judgment seat of Christ? Any unconfessed sin? If there is, I will suffer loss. It will affect my reward and my place in the kingdom. My eternal salvation is secure. Of that there can be no doubt. But my carelessness will have eternal consequences. That's a solemn thought, isn't it? So what's the secret? It's to be in that constant attitude of prayer and keeping the lines of communication open. Some years ago, it was my privilege to speak at the dedication service in Ross-on-Wye, close to the Welsh border, where the then young Martin Irwin was being installed as their new youth pastor. I was there to confirm his confirmation, to confirm his commendation. Towards the end of the meeting, a dear brother was asked to pray. Presently, he seemed to appear from nowhere at the back of the hall, and then slowly he walked up to the front, turned around, held up his tiny testament, and in that fine, rich Welsh voice, announced that it might be appropriate to just read a benediction and pray briefly, which he did, and then walked down the hall again and disappeared from view. I was very much moved by the moment and wondering just who this man could be, commenting later to Martin that you would have thought that that man had just stepped out from the presence of God to do the closing prayer and then stepped back in again. Martin, who knew him well, replied to me with words to the effect that that's where Gordon Roberts lives. We don't meet many people like that today. But we do when we come to the first psalm. Happy is the man, happy is the woman whose delight is in the law of the Lord. So let's look at those three verses together very briefly. What's the simple threefold message here in verse one? Be careful where you walk, where you stand, where you sit. We might have put it the other way around and say, where you sit, where you stand, where you walk. That would be the normal order of progression. But here it's walking, standing, sitting. Perhaps it's the idea of slowing down and like Mary, learning to sit at his feet and hear his word. Be careful where you walk. What path are you taking? Look out where you stand. What are your surroundings? Watch where you sit. 
Who are you sitting down with? The warning must be heeded. And that will guard us against the three dangers mentioned in verse 1. Namely, the counsel of the ungodly. The way of sinners. The seat of the scornful. I won't read it in public, but the short letter to Jude in the New Testament, just before Revelation, outlines in graphic detail the kind of lives that many men and women have lived and are living, and the promise of God's judgment that will surely fall upon all such who refuse to turn to him from their sins. But God will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But more of that later. Now look at verse 2. It starts with a but. But his delight, but her delight, is in the law of the Lord. Basically, the scriptures, the Bible. And in them he, she, meditates day and night. It's the thought of meditating on the verses that you have committed to memory. It's like a cow chewing the cud, turning it over and over and over in your mind until it stirs your heart and so bringing out that spontaneous overflow of worship and you feel truly blessed. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And meditation can be enjoyed in whatsoever employment you're engaged throughout the day. It'll be a guard against careless and unprofitable thoughts and actions. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And it will be out of that deep reservoir of scripture hidden away that you will be able to face on certain days, challenging times, difficult days ahead. Verse 3 tells us here in verse 3 that the person who does those things will be like a tree, but not just any tree, a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in his season. Is this the spiritual return to Eden where God was near and there was refreshing from the river or from, and from its source the water of life flowing out to the four corners of the world as great rivers? Is that the kind of fruit your life will produce carried to the ends of the earth? But then it says it shall be like a tree. It's an example. An example of a man or woman living in such a way as to be fruitful and bringing blessing to others while drawing sustenance from that deep, deep fountain of love and life that wells up from within. Christ himself. Don't we sing it often? O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. 
Philip Keller, in his book, Sky Edge, describes vividly in one of the chapters a very personal and refreshing time of intimate fellowship with God at a mountain stream where he stopped on his mountain trek. He writes, I needed to sense the power, the purity, the life, the potency that flowed from above. My father did not disappoint me. In the serenity and strength of that stream, he spoke to me emphatically. He touched me in unmistakable terms. It was a warm summer afternoon when I made camp near the stream. It invited me to draw near, listen to its song, and drink of its coolness. With sudden, startling insight, I realized that just as I had drawn near to this stream to drink deeply of its freshness, to plunge my face into its cooling depths, so Christ had invited me to come to him and drink deeply of his invigorating, ever-abundant life. In a private, deliberate act of profound faith, I lifted my face toward the slanting rays of the late afternoon sun and spoke softly, O my master, my friend, my father, I take your very life and drink it to its depths. This is indeed a high watermark in Christian living. But let's not be discouraged tonight. Rather turn to Paul's words in Philippians where he says, brothers and sisters, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Is that what you want? Is that what I want? To press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What I have, we have considered up to now is the personal pattern or lifestyle that the believer in Christ, or the godly as inferred in the psalm, are invited to, to follow. However, as always, I am conscious that there may be some listening to this talk for whom such things are foreign or even strange. Had we gone further on into verse 4, we would have read, the ungodly are not so. The ungodly are not so. And what is described of the godly clearly cannot be said of the ungodly. But the good news of the gospel is this, that Christ died for the ungodly. That's great news. Christ died for the ungodly. And it's through that 
a personal faith in him that men and women down through the ages have been brought back to God and into close fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. This blessing can be yours even now if you would accept your true condition before God and take his son as personal savior. Let's go back to the shores of Galilee. Think for a moment of those simple fishermen who were prepared to give up everything they had in order to become followers of a man they had never met before just because he called them. What was it about him that had such drawing power? It was then, as it is now, God's Holy Spirit convicting us of our need and pointing us to the only one who can meet that need, that is our spiritual need. It is the cross of Christ that has that drawing power even today. For Jesus declared himself in those amazing words, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. The drawing power of Christ today is still the same as it was that day on the shores of Galilee. And there at Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago, God's Son willingly laid down his life, shedding his blood as the price for our redemption, buried and on the third day rose again. And on that basis, the invitation goes out, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weighed down with the heavy load of sin, and I will give you rest. Who wouldn't want to follow such a man? One who gave himself, gave his all, shed his blood for a poor sinner like me, for someone like you. Who wouldn't want to follow a man like that? We present to the world today a living, ascended, exalted Savior, one who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Respond then to the call of Christ this very hour. Become one of his followers. Learn what it is to live daily in the conscious knowledge of his presence. Immerse yourself in the word, in the scriptures, in the Bible. And then you too will be counted amongst those who the psalmist describes as happy and blessed. Happy is the man. Happy is the woman whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law, they meditate day and night. Amen. And so unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, 
to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.